Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, and I am standing in as host this week for David Rothkop, who has gone to China and has not come back. We're hoping he will be back uh, next week if he's he's allowed back into the United States. But that's okay because luckily David picked a week in which absolutely nothing is happening to go away. Um, so we'll have a nice relaxed chat with with Corey Shockey, who is joining us from from the the steps of uh, Westminster in London. Uh, Corey from the in- International Institute of Strategic Studies. Um, and I'm not sure if that's steps with one P or steps with two P's and E and S, because early we heard a lot of windswept noises from around Ed Corey. Luce would, Ed Luce would be our local expert on that question. <laughs> the windswept steps of Westminster. <laughs> I, I, I have no comment. And that's Ed Luce from the Financial Times. Uh, and then also joining us is is one of our former guests, and I hope future guests again after this, uh, Colin Call, who is now a senior fellow at the Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation and also a former colleague of mine from the Obama administration. So, guys, nothing is happening this week. It's a very quiet week in, in U.S. politics and global relations. Um, the only thing that's going to happen is we're going to desperately – uh, try to save the Iran deal, or at least that seems to be what France's president is busily doing. Um, he has uh, bravely volunteered to be the only European leader who is willing to go and pretend that he likes Donald Trump. Um, and he's doing this all in the service of keeping Trump from killing off the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, Colin, do you think he's going to succeed? Uh, thanks, Rosa. Um, I wouldn't hold our I wouldn't hold our breath. I mean, on the one hand, Macron does you know have the reputation in in Europe as being the Trump whisperer, uh, but it didn't seem sufficient to keep Trump in the in the Paris Climate Accord uh, or to prevent Trump from doing what he did in in announcing Jerusalem as Israel's capital or to stop Trump uh, from the tariff war. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, Macron uh, did join alongside uh, Theresa May in the UK, did join in the recent cruise missile strike and bombing of, of Syria uh, alongside the United States. So maybe that buys him a little bit of political capital. But I think the deeper problem is that, you know, Trump hates the deal, uh, hates the Iran nuclear deal. Um, he's now surrounded himself with advisors who really hate the deal. John Bolton, uh, being uh, uh, exhibit A on that. I mean, Trump laid down an ultimatum to the Europeans in mid-January saying, fix this terrible deal or I'm going to exit it uh, in uh, in mid-May. Uh, that, so that deadline's coming up. And Bolton has repeatedly said and written that he doesn't believe that he's a, he's a nixer, not a fixer, and doesn't uh, believe that uh, the deal is worth fixing. He thinks we should just pivot off 
uh, off of the deal towards is, is maximum a mixer, sanctions. Is, is that like an occupational category? <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, it, 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 it is, it is. It's what do like, you do? I'm a Nixer. <laughs> right. It's like, it's like when, it's like when Mr. Wolf shows up uh, to be the fixer uh, at your door to like clean up the, the, the dead body, uh, except this would be the opposite of that. This is the guy who comes <laughs> to your house and kills people. Uh, and that's probably a decent description, frankly, of John Bolton. Um, but in this particular case, he just thinks it's a fool's errand uh, to try to fix the nuclear agreement uh, and and has argued before that Trump should just cut and cut cleanly and walk away from the deal. So we'll see. I'm not sure it's it's quite mission impossible for Macron on the on the Iran deal. The State Department and European officials have made some progress in addressing Trump's stated concerns. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't hold your breath on whether he can rescue it. Corey, what's your take on this? And, and also, is there any such thing as a Trump whisperer? <laughs> I think Cohen is exactly right. Um, and I think President Macron is likely to learn the hard way what Prime Minister Abe has already learned, which is that no amount of personal chemistry, and actually President Xi has also learned, no amount of personal chemistry translates into policy traction with President Trump. And that the best way to understand the choices he's going to make is his own campaign promises and rhetoric in his rallies that that I think the personnel changes bring people into closer alignment with uh, with pre- what President Trump wants to do, starts to get out of the way the people who keep saying, yeah, boss, but uh, and I don't think foreign leaders will have any greater uh, aptitude at bringing President Trump into mainstream positions than members of his own cabinet have. So, Ed, here's a question, um, and actually, Corey and and Colin, uh, feel free to chime in on this as well. After Ed, let's say, um, as seems likely, that that Macron is no more successful than anyone else has been in the past at convincing President Trump that the Iran deal is actually in the U.S. interest, and so, uh, in a few short weeks, Trump symbolically stands on the White House lawn and takes his copy of the Iran deal and rips it into a thousand tiny little shreds. What what happens in the Middle East? What happens in Iran? What happens globally in terms of impact on other places the next day or the next week? Well, well, that's a good question. But before answering it, let me just say two things. Colin, your Nick's are not a fixer thing is going to appear in the Financial Times soon. Thank you. I, <laughs> I, I like I like that uh, description of Bolton. And the other the question I, is whether you're going to cite him. Don't cite him. Just steal it. I, I, I will. I'm now torn. I, I, I would, <laughs> but I hey, gonna... just just for the record, I coined the term "axis of adults" on Twitter, and nobody's ever cited me on oh, that. Oh so well, you should cite Colin on that instead. Steal the Knicks are not a fixer, oh, well, but but that was genius. That was genius, and that did stick. And I, I will I will find a way of attributing that to you. Um, uh, the second thing I was going to say before answering your very good question, Rosa, was that you're doing a brilliant job standing in for David. Uh, and uh, <laughs> here, here. Uh, I haven't. I haven't yet noticed his absence, and I'm just uh, hoping David won't listen to this. Uh, uh, but so we won't let him. We will we'll just pretend we didn't do this episode. It, it, well, exactly. It, it'll it'll disappear into the deep state vaults. Um, to answer your question, 
I, I'm not sure that that's going to happen in such a clean way. I, I, I think that side deals on Iran's ballistic missile program, on its uh, sponsorship of terrorism in the region and so forth, might be something that uh, Macron and indeed uh, Merkel, who, who's turning up late, uh, a few days after Macron's state dinner, and this is, this is very much an, an old Europe few days that Trump's uh, engaging in, uh, that I, I, I'm not sort of convinced that Trump uh, isn't going to agree to some add-on to the deal before before scrapping it. But if 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 the premise of your question is correct, and Trump pulls from the deal, then we get to a very very interesting moment, because Iran has said it's not going to resume its nuclear program fully, um, uh, the, uh, both Rouhani and, and the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini have spoken on this scenario, and, and, and they have both attempted to reassure that Iran wouldn't go nuclear straight away, but it would do everything but. Um, so the question would then uh, be, to what extent do America's allies stick with America? Or, or um, say, look, this deal, in our view, um, is, is a multilateral deal to which we signed up and we remain signatories to. And if Iran, Iran continues to stick to um, the international inspection um, regime and, and so forth, then this is America that is unilaterally pulled from the deal, not Iran. Uh, and so that, that will be a really interesting test of whether alliances mean anything anymore, and uh, and to be honest, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know that the Knicks are not the fixer. John Bolton will not particularly care about any fallout with Europe, um, and that tends to be Trump's sort of ultimate instinct. Uh, as uh, as uh, as you've all already pointed out, relationships don't really count for much with him. Mm-hmm. It- Rosa, can I pile on on? Yeah, because I look, absolutely. Just for the for the for the listeners who are not following this in my new detail, and and God, I hope they're not because it's super boring. Uh, even if it's important, uh, essentially. <laughs> but that's what we do here at Deep State Radio. Right, we get right. bored, so you We're, won't have to get bored. Right. I think it's riveting. I, I, I beg to differ. I, what I what I would say is that we are uh, Deep State Radio is boring shit with a Corey Shockey laugh track. <laughs> That's the uh, nicest thing anybody's ever said about this podcast. Yeah, Colin. exactly, exactly right. <laughs> boring shit with a Corey Shockey laugh track. All right, so, so on a, on a serious. I can see my thanks to you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> on a serious uh, note, so look, Trump laid down a number of markers in January. He basically said there were three fatal flaws with the agreement. You got to fix the ballistic missile. Uh, issue the fact that ballistic missiles aren't included in the agreement. You uh, have to ad- uh, address uh, the, you know, the inspections issue to make sure that uh, inspectors can go any place in Iran anytime they want. And third, you have to address the so-called sunset issues, which is the fact that at years 10 and 15 of the nuclear deal, some of the constraints start to fall away. The Europeans are going to, I think, cross the finish line on ballistic missiles. Uh, That is, if Trump's willing to take yes for an answer, I think we'll have an agreement with the Europeans on ballistic missiles. I think the Europeans and the State Department have also come up with a way to clarify that the Iran deal has very intrusive inspections and that inspectors should be able to go anywhere they need to go to inspect the deal. And that, at least on its surface, should be enough to uh, check the box for Trump. The bigger issue is the sunset issue, because what the U.S. is demanding is that Europe— 
uh, threatened to immediately reimpose sanctions if Iran expands its nuclear program after year 15 of the deal, which is problematic because they're allowed to expand their nuclear program. Uh, and so threatening to reimpose sanctions would actually, uh, at least from the European perspective, uh, be seen as a violation of the agreement. So I think they're likely to come up with some statement about uh, you know, a willingness to uh, negotiate a follow-on agreement that addresses the sunset issues that would include the Russians, the Chinese, and Iran, the other parties uh, to the agreement. And, you know, and whether uh, Trump takes, uh, you know, most of a yes for an answer is to be determined. But what happens if he, on March 12th, refuses to sign the waivers uh, for the nuclear-related sanctions, which is our end of the bargain, in the context of Iran complying with the agreement, which the IAEA and everybody else who's looked at their compliance agrees that they are, then we will be in material breach of the agreement, whether uh, whether Trump exits it or not. And then I think the question is precisely, Ed's, which is, does the rest of the world come with us? Uh, I think the answer is they won't. Uh, the Europeans, especially if Trump doesn't agree to a compromise with them, will be in no mood uh, to follow his lead. Uh, they didn't uh, abide by U.S. secondary sanctions against Iran in the 1990s during the Clinton administration when they disagreed with our policy. I don't think they're likely to follow Trump's lead now uh, and violate the deal alongside the United States. I think they're likely to try to take steps to protect their banks and companies doing business uh, with with Iran. Um, and I and I think they're also likely to threaten retaliation against the United States if we sanction their companies, uh, take us to the WTO uh, Etc. You can also bank on the fact that the Russians and the Chinese uh, won't uh, follow along, and that major Asian customers for uh, Iran's oil, which is not just China but Japan, South Korea, uh, India, Taiwan, uh, are also not likely uh, to uh, follow along, at least in mass. And so, as a consequence, I think it, the the decision would largely isolate Washington, not Tehran. And then the question becomes, how does Iran react? And there, Iran could either try to play the victim right out of the gate, which is what I think they'll try to do, which is use the decision to drive a wedge between the United States and the rest of the international community. Or they could do something large, symbolic on the nuclear front in terms of, you know, recommissioning some of their centrifuges, expanding their research and development, curtailing some of the inspection rights, but doing just enough to kind of create counter leverage without tearing down the entire deal. And then I just, it's going to be a mess. You'll have partial compliance with U.S. sanctions. You'll have Iran inching its way out of its own obligations, and you'll have an administration with no diplomatic solutions left. Um, and you'll have a national security advisor who can't, you know, who likes to sing "Bomb Bomb Iran" in the shower. Uh, and uh, so it'll be it'll be sporty. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Okay. How do you feel about the sporty era we're entering, Corey? <laughs> <laughs> if the Iranians are smart enough to remain compliant with the deal as the U.S. leaves it, that maximizes the likelihood of a transatlantic rift, maximizes the likelihood that Europeans will give political cover to the Japanese, to other purchases of Iranian oil and other potential investors, uh, to, as a block, uh, push back against secondary sanctions by the Treasury Department. Uh, what I can't figure out, well, I mean, I can't figure it out. The White House is terrible at strategy. But a smarter strategy than the one they're pursuing was the one they might have pursued by keeping the Iran agreement in constant purgatory so that we, we were in compliance, but we were always at the risk of stepping out of the deal such that companies wouldn't take the risk of investing in Iran. 
So this is what the Iranians were complaining about, which is what we've been doing for the last couple of years, is we're so our actions are so uncertain, even under the Obama administration, by the way, the prospects and not because there was policy uncertainty, but just because, you know, banks and big illiquid investors have to be careful about the reach of the Treasury Department. But if we play this clumsily, which I, I agree with Colin, the administration is likeliest to do, um, we impose, we threaten secondary sanctions on Europeans, Chinese, anybody who does business with Iran. The Europeans counter with, with sanctions that hit electoral districts, and you have a, you have a Mexican standoff between the U.S. and Europe, which has the Iranians and everybody else cheering because we've put a gun to our own head and pulled the trigger. Well, see, all of this from the perspective of someone who teaches international law, this is all very good news for us, because the more everybody fights with each other and the more disputes there are about sanctions and assets, the more jobs there are for international lawyers. <laughs> my, my students are always blown away by the fact that the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal established in the wake of the 1979 hostage-taking is still very much in business. So I foresee a, a bright future for all the international lawyers working on these issues. It is a full employment program, so so I guess international lawyers the world over will be supporting Donald Trump. <laughs> well, and and, and jour journalists uh, could probably add their voice to that. <laughs> well, so here here's a related question. I mean, of course, um, right around the time that Donald Trump may be uh, tearing the Iran deal into symbolic shreds on the White House lawn, he will also be... Um, meeting the man who I am convinced will become his new best friend, Kim Jong-un, in North Korea. Uh, how do these things relate to each other, right? I mean, I mean, to what extent does the unsettled fate of uh, U.S. involvement in the Iran deal uh, hang over the potential uh, upcoming conversation between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un? And I guess, let me, since, 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 since uh, Ed... I, Ed, I regard you as an Asia expert, so I'll <laughs> well, let you answer that question. You are profoundly mistaken. <laughs> uh, I, I do, uh, I do, um, I do have quite a bit of background in India, where I was based, which um, I guess has now been recast as part of that region by the Trump administration, which refers to it as the Indo-Pacific. Uh, nowadays and not um, not the Asia-Pacific. Uh, Allow but, me to interrupt to point out that it's the United States Navy starting about seven years ago that tried to do that as a as a subliminal, subliminal suggestion to antagonize the Chinese. Uh, but it's the Trump administration that's taken it up and made it stick. But you're quite right. I, I, I stand corrected. But the India experience I do have is somewhat relevant. Um, because, as you know, the uh, the two countries most recently to have gone nuclear before North Korea were India and Pakistan, and the United States attempted, first of all, um, uh, in 1999, to stymie India after the uh, the Vajpayee government conducted tests, followed by Pakistan's tests. Then realised it it was having no impact whatsoever. Uh, and so pushed through this historic nuclear one, two, three deal, um, 
under Bush and then finished by Obama, um, that recognized uh, India as, as a nuclear weapons power, even though it is not a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, so, you know, America has already on behalf, if not of an ally, then uh, what they call a natural ally, namely India, um, uh, enab enabled a, um, a de facto breaking of international law to accommodate it. North Korea is at the opposite end of the spectrum uh, to India. We can all feel safe with an Indian nuclear arsenal. Nobody feels safe with a North Korean one. Um, and yet that is what we have. Trump wants to denuclearize North Korea. Uh, the Kim Jong-un um, playbook, which has been very, very skillful all year. I mean, he began the year with this overture for the Winter, Winter Olympics. And he's continued with, you know, what, what is kind of a charm offensive. Um, most recently this weekend um, by offering to freeze uh, missile tests and nuclear tests. So um, what impact does the Iran, um, does Trump's likelihood of scrapping the Iran deal have on Kim Jong-un's calculations? My guess is not much because I, I suspect what he's doing and others, uh, Colin and Corey and you, Rosa, will, will, will have um, sort of uh, finer final judgment on this. But what I suspect that Kim Jong-un is doing is playing very clever PR diplomacy, but without having the slightest intention of denuclearizing um, uh, what, what is the one piece of leverage that he has got and which he has very aggressively um, accumulated in the, in the six, seven short years since, since, he, uh, since he took over the country. So I doubt that Iran is going to have any impact on him whatsoever. Will it, will it, um, uh, will it persuade him that America is not good at keeping its word? Um, maybe, but I suspect what he's really preoccupied with um, is how most skillfully to break his word uh, over the coming years. It's because he's a fixer, not a nixer. He's a fixer, not a nixer. No, he's neither, actually. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Gory. I, I apologize for not waiting direction. Um, I... I, this is a democracy, <laughs> sort of. I do so Ish. love the way Rosa just embraces strategies that are all about American political culture. Because so often people, especially people like us who've worked in the Pentagon, want to impose a structure and a unity that American political culture is incapable of carrying out. And Rosa just leans forward into <laughs> the joyful a cacophony of American society in confidence, good things come out of it. See, and well, yes, yes, or not. I know or not. it's not in confidence. <laughs> or not. I, I know. I, I'm picturing, I'm the picturing. Thorny of, the thorny crown of entropy. See, I'm picturing but, Trump going to Pyongyang and looking around and saying to Kim Jong-un, you know, I love what you've done with the place. That's my fear. <laughs> nice, I, per, so, nice parade. Who's your, who's your party planner? Precisely. Oh, you guys are thinking so much too little. He is going to come back with the exclusive contractual ability to develop Pyongyang <laughs> into a gambling denizen, right? Like Trump yeah, everywhere. Yeah, no, you're right. That's, where, that's, also that's the quite train. possible. They're going to get to keep their nuclear weapons provided Trump hotels and casinos go up all over Pyongyang. And that, sounds, see the that opportunity. sounds like a deal that would be more than fair. 
<laughs> so um, what I I agree with everything Ed said. I do think the North Koreans are playing this very smart, and there's a lot of foolish journalism going on of fawning appreciation for the newfound wonders of a government that has hundreds of thousands of its own people in prison camps and gives the military the right of first food distribution over civilians. Um, the North Korean government's awful. The North Korean government's broken its word on every agreement it's ever made. They're perfectly content to starve their own people. So, yeah, he's playing a weak hand jubilantly well and we are uh, to some extent playing into it i don't I think agree if he with plays people... his cards right he could be our next national security advisor <laughs> well at least we'll be rid of bolton right and we'll have somebody who's good at strategy yep <laughs> um i i the one thing i think the trump administration is doing really well is that so far they have let the south set the terms of this discussion. And for an administration that basically doesn't see the value of alliances, that they are effectively leading from behind the South Koreans on this. The South Koreans brokered the deal for the summit. The South Koreans are setting the terms of any potential agreement. That's actually a way better outcome than we are likely to get if the Trump administration was setting the terms. The South Koreans are the ally most affected by our choices on this. They're the ones who are going to pay the sticker price for any unification of the peninsula on terms we would find acceptable. They're the ones most at risk as well. I actually think it's great that the South Koreans are the ones uh, you know, quietly but diligently setting the terms of this debate. And frankly, any outcome that's acceptable to South Korea, I mostly think is in America's interest as well. So, Rosa, on that, I think Corey touches on something that's super important. And I, you know, there's a lot of debate, and I think pundits and historians will talk, will debate for a long time, you know, how much Trump's fire and fury rhetoric and total annihilation and little rocket man taunts had anything to do with Kim Jong-un's willingness to uh, you know, go to the table and talk to the Americans. But I think it is indisputable that Trump's uh, bellicosity scared the hell out of the South Koreans and really did push them to the forefront on diplomacy. Right. Because, the South, because the South Koreans were terrified. They were much more terrified that Trump was going to start a war that killed millions of or hundreds of thousands, at the very least, of South Koreans than they were of uh, Kim Jong-un's nu nuclear arsenals. So at the very least, uh, there's a clear explanation for why the South, Korea's are South Koreans are leaning into this. I think the danger that we, have to, that we have to be mindful of, and I really wish that the media was focusing on this instead of kind of fawning over Kim Jong-un, is the, the South Koreans have a very conventional play that they're running. The play that they're, the proposal they're going to put on the table uh, with, with Kim Jong-un is that he freezes his uh, nuclear testing and his missile uh, testing, uh, and uh, uh, in exchange for um, perhaps some consideration of uh, an eventual uh, peace agreement and some and some security assurances, and then some roadmap over time that would commit the North Koreans to verifiable denuclearization, whether it actually happens or not. Uh, that could take years. It could take longer than that. They would be reciprocated step by step through a series of sanctions relief or other diplomatic or security uh, assurances. It, it's a very uh, standard diplomatic play that starts with a freeze and, and moves over time towards 
rollback. I share a lot of Corey's skepticism about whether the regime in Pyongyang will ever would ever get to the end point uh, of that, or, or and that they might cheat along the way. But that's certainly what the South Koreans are doing, and it certainly reduces the risk of a nuclear war in the sh- in the short term. I think the risk of that that we see going into the Trump summit with Kim, which will follow the this, the summit between uh, President Moon of South Korea and Kim Jong-un, uh, which will happen later this month, the Trump summit, which will happen either in late May or early June, assuming it goes off, I think there's there's one of two errors that 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 North that South Korea is kind of treading this middle path, this reasonable pragmatic middle path, and Trump could err on either side of that path. He could go in full John Bolton and be a complete maximalist that basically says if you know believing he Trump believing that he's negotiating from, from a position of strength based on his maximum pressure campaign might believe that Kim Jong Un is prepared to capitulate and put all his nuclear weapons and missiles on a ship like Muammar Gaddafi did uh, in 2003, which is Bolton's example uh, in his mind, even though it's an apples to oranges uh, comparison. And that, you know, if 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 Kim doesn't completely capitulate and give up his nukes in a very short period of time, uh, then we're going to pivot to some other option. But the but the other risk is actually that Trump gets suckered. It's not that he's a maximalist, but that he proves himself to be a sucker, that he goes in and essentially uh, uh, accepts a deal that is not great for us and is really terrible for our allies. Um, in other words, Kim Jong-un goes in, he, he, he lavishes praise on, on, on Trump, talks about his electoral map and his crowd size, warms him up uh, like other uh, foreign policy, uh, other foreign leaders have, and then offers some uh, reduction in his ICBM, his intercontinental ballistic missile arsenal, which is the only thing Trump really cares about because it threatens the American homeland, in exchange for things that essentially throw some combination of South Korea and Japan under the bus mm-hmm. by not addressing mm-hmm. uh, North Korea's regional threat. And I and that, I actually think that risk is maybe bigger uh, because that, because Trump is is keen to have something that looks like a win to say that he accomplished something that his predecessors didn't. And so I think that's what the South Koreans are nervous about now. If they were nervous before about Trump dragging them into a war, they have to be, they have to be nervous now that Trump no, walks give in. Away the store. Yeah. 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 I think that's a great point. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think that the unifying themes of, of Trump's actions or likely actions on Iran and this upcoming summit with Kim Jong Un absolutely uh, are about the value of alliances or lack thereof. And I, I think that's that's the most important sort of fallout from all of this, is that the, the power of America's alliances are dissolving before our eyes. And, and, Trump, and Trump is both overtly and inadvertently um, pushing that, um, pushing that outcome. Well, let me let me shift to a different question, although it's not completely unrelated. Um, Donald Trump, obviously, he has just replaced H.R. Uh, McMaster with John Bolton as national security advisor. Bolton is now a week into the job. Um, but there are uh, some key vacancies that remain in the Trump administration, including uh, at the State Department, uh, where President Trump has nominated Uh, his current CIA director, Mike Pompeo, to be Secretary of State. And meanwhile, he has nominated a career CIA official, Gina Haspel, to be the new CIA director. Uh, Two questions about about these folks. Um, Corey, let me let me start with you on this. You know, number one, um, 
any thoughts on the odds that uh, Pompeo and Haspel are going to make it through the confirmation process? And, 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 but, but maybe more importantly, what, if anything, is actually at stake in whether or not they get through, right? I mean, does, at this point, does it make any difference uh, who occupies these roles, or or is, should we just write the whole thing off as as a lost administration and and go home and you know find a good book to read or something? Excellent questions, both. Yes, I think both of them will get confirmed, uh, and in large part because you have Republicans will have the ability to bring a majority if they can bring over one or two red state Democrats. And I think that will prove, um, that will prove possible. So yeah, I think they both get confirmed. Uh, Gina Haskell probably bruised up a little bit in the process. Uh, Pompeo has handled the, his testimony extraordinarily adroitly, right? He calmed a whole lot of people's concerns by the way he answered questions and, the, the bonhomie with which he understood that this is a political testing ground, not a, not a PhD uh, dissertation exam. The, the second question, I think, is a really important one, which is, does it make any difference? I do think it makes an enormous amount of difference. And if you answer the question, uh, does Jim Mattis matter in this administration, if you answer that, yes, right, I sleep better at night that Secretary Mattis is in this administration, then by definition, it matters who's in those roles. I, I'm uh, only happy if he's in the administration, if he is listening to deep state radio. And I, I hope he is. <laughs> Secretary Mattis, we hope you're listening. We have some we have a few tips for you. S- send me a thumb. Send me a thumbs up emoji if you're listening. <laughs> uh, so so. It matters in principle who's in those jobs. Are these two people who it will matter if they personally are in those jobs is a related question. And my sense is that um, Tillerson may have been reasonably good at the quiet work of talking to allies, but he never was any good at the work of delivering his boss on those agreements. Uh, You know, we could cite chapter and verse on that count. But uh, Gina Haskell, I think, is it will be interesting to see whether she can get the president's confidence, whether she can protect the intelligence community in the way that Pompeo and Coates have done a good job of protecting the intelligence community from the president's onslaught. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that with her. I think it's untested in large part. The fact that she's an intelligence professional will probably give people in the intelligence community uh, more confidence than most political appointees will have. And I think Pompeo will be terrific at state. I actually think he's got good soldiers' reflexes on leading an institution. Uh, They can hardly go downhill, although I realize I'm breaking my own uh, (laughs) law that it's a failure of imagination to think things can't get worse. Well, but Colin, I actually think he's he is in line with the president's reflexes. He has figured out how to talk to the president as as the director of central intelligence, and it's not clear to me that the prior uh, holder of the secretary of state's job ever persuaded the president of anything. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, Colin, let me let me ask you a question about Gina Haspel. Uh, yeah. uh, on on the one hand, um, there's a lot to like about her, including I, I have to say it would be fantastic to have the first woman uh, CIA director. And she clearly is a, a highly respected inside player uh, within the agency with a lot of credibility with agency rank and file. Uh, on the other hand, she was very close, maybe uh, right smack in the middle of one of the more disgraceful episodes in the history of this country's intelligence community. And, and that is the uh, scandal involving the use of what the media keeps insisting on referring to as extreme interrogation methods that some refer to as torture. I'm, I'm just going to say methods. They right. were torture, waterboarding, yeah. et cetera. Uh, during the uh, early fir first first administration of George W. Bush, um, she she ran one of the so-called black sites uh, at which the CIA used techniques such as waterboarding. She was later involved in uh, the destruction of some of the tapes of those interrogation sessions. Um, and I, there's, there's a kind of a, on the, on the one hand, you know, human right, rights groups and many Democrats in Congress uh, have raised great concern about this. In fact, I, I see there's also uh, recently released a letter from about a, a hundred prominent uh, retired military officials, including luminaries like uh, Hugh Shelton, General Hugh Shelton and, and Chuck Krulik, uh, saying we're a little worried about having somebody run the CIA who was involved in involved to an extent that is still a little bit unclear uh, in in these episodes. Um, but on the other hand, there's there's a lot of people making noise, including Democrats making noise of, oh, well, forgive and forget. It was a long time ago. She was just doing her job. It wasn't her idea. She was just carrying out orders. Should we be worried about this? Uh, yes, I think we should. Uh, look, I, I agree uh, with Corey's assessment that, you know, uh, in all likelihood, they both get through, although I th think Pompeo is going to get through by the skin of his teeth. And I think Gina Haspel, there's a shot she doesn't get through. Um, and look, part of the problem in judging, I don't know Gina Haspel as an individual. I don't know if she's a good person or a bad person. I think it'd be great to have a woman as a director of the CIA. I think it would be great to have someone who is respected by the agency and who's not seen as politically ideological. Um, you know, I, that would all be great. Um, but what, but we don't know much about her. And the reason why we don't know much about her is that she has spent her entire career in the clandestine service. Literally her resume is classified. One of the complaints that Democrats have had, uh, is that they don't know much about her background, uh, and that the CIA has selectively declassified favorable aspects of her background while essentially, uh, keeping everything else uh, in the dark. Uh, so it's hard, I think, to have an objective, uh, uh, evaluation of her. And so part of the debate about Gina Haspel is what she represents, what she symbolizes. And, and there, it's her relationship with the torture program. And let's call it what it is. It was a torture program. When you see people using the, uh, the euphemism, enhanced interrogation techniques, or even worse, the acronym EITs, which is meant to kind of sanitize what was actually done uh, to these people, uh, it was torture. And she had a front row seat for it, both as uh, in, in, in Thailand, where she ran a black site uh, where this stuff was done, and uh, because, you know, pretty uh, suspiciously, she was involved in the destruction of video evidence of these harsh interrogation uh, uh, techniques. Now, the CIA in the last couple of days has selectively declassified a report that cleared Gina Haspel of any wrongdoing in the destruction of that video, largely because it said she was following orders. Um, uh, you know, whether that's the right 
Uh, when ethical or, have yeah, we heard, we heard that, that before. before. <laughs> That's right. It sounds so, better in the original German. It, it does. Uh, <laughs> mein Fuhrer! Uh, in any case, um, sorry, I was doing a little Dr. Strangelove thing with my arm up in the air. You, if, if, <laughs> you, just, have to, you just have to imagine it. Me wheeling, me wheeling around my office uh, at Stanford in a, in a wheelchair with, with the high Can I just say, yeah. I really did not need that visual. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. so glad this is audio. And, and, and Colin, I'm just going to say, let's let's hope nobody else noticed that because that's right. the kind of thing that doesn't look good in the student newspaper. Yeah, but, but it used to be something that, that you know, if I was ever up for a Senate confirmable position would doom me. And I'm not sure anymore. You know, post Charlottesville, I could probably walk in <laughs> with a true. pottery bar tiki point. torch and do just fine. Anyway, uh, so... I, look, here's the here's here's what I think the debate is broken down to. I think because we don't know much about Gina Haspel, it's what she 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 symbolizes. There is, and I think there's kind of a division, a three way division. There are people who say what we did after 9/11 was perfectly legal uh, and understandable, and it worked. So there's nothing to apologize for, and therefore Haspel's involvement in it is nothing for us to be ashamed about. It we should own it. A second position, which I th- which I think is slightly more reasonable, is. After 9/11, these were extreme circumstances. We we were in we were in existential fear for what might happen next, and the people who carried out these activities believed that they were legal. So it's not that they knew that they were illegal and they were and they were just following orders. That they, they were they believed and were told by the lawyers that it was legal, even in retrospect. It, if it looks Never, somewhat different, ever trust a lawyer. Yeah, that's all I can say. Especially especially lawyers who are podcast hosts. Um, right and. The th- but but the third but the third position is that we should have a zero tolerance that it was obvious that this stuff was torture uh, that that uh, extreme circumstances are not an excuse that in fact we have to uphold norms when it's hard not when it's easy uh, and more importantly that nominating this person and confirming this person would send a signal to the world not that we put it behind us but actually that we're celebrating it in some way uh, that it's that it's a good thing and that the symbolism of it separate and apart from Gina Haspel as a person, is extraordinarily bad for U.S. leadership, moral leadership in the world, especially in the context of the Trump administration. I find myself very sympathetic to that third position. I don't know her as a person, but I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze of putting somebody with this track record up uh, to be at the head of our most prominent intelligence uh, uh, agency. Well, let me let me, since we only have a few minutes left, let me again shift course a little bit. Um, uh, Ed, you you told me in an email before we got on this podcast that you have just finished reading the new book out by uh, New York Times reporter Amy Chosick called Chasing Hillary. It's a memoir of her, her time uh, essentially following candidate Hillary Clinton around for several years. Uh, and some of our listeners may have, for instance, read the uh, short excerpt that appeared in the Times uh, in which uh, apparently Hillary said, you know, they would never let me be president. And 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 Chosen herself, Chosek, excuse me, herself uh, ends up saying that she feels that Hillary was right, except that the they turned out not to be the vast right wing conspiracy, but it turned out to be. Uh, among others, people just like her, people like her and many other journalists in the United States who who covered the WikiLeaks story and amplified stories that made it sound like Hillary was up to no good with the email server, uh, much of which turned out to be, you know, a pot that was very much stirred by by Russian uh, hackers and Russian manipulation. 
um, while while under reporting on some of what was going on with Donald Trump. So she she ends up essentially sort of blaming the media for being gullible tools of foreign intervention. Uh, what's your take on this? Uh, well, uh, well, I've, I've, is it your fault that Donald Trump is in the White House? That's what I'm asking. It is it your fault? Collectively, as a profession, um, I think the media bears uh, some blame, but I would direct more of it towards cable news than print. I think if you actually look at the print record of uh, uh, the Washington Post and to some degree the New York Times, it was a, did a pretty exemplary job of of telling readers who Trump was and delving into his background. But let me just very quickly add something to what Collins just said about Gina Haspel and the Adolf Eichmann. Uh, I was just following orders defense. I, I, if, I, if I had to bet, um, if I had uh, to, to bet as to whether she'll be confirmed, I don't think she will be. I, I mean, it's a narrow call, but I think she probably isn't going to get any Democratic votes. But the, 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 uh, I was just following orders line. When you're the head of intelligence in this context for this president means something quite different than, than in other circumstances. But sorry, back to, back to Amy, Amy Chozik. Uh, the frustrating thing about a book, which I've literally just finished today, I'm reviewing it uh, for the Financial Times, is she's a brilliant writer. I mean, she's an exceptionally good writer. Um, and I think she's probably more of a writer than she is a reporter. Uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a very Maureen Dowd uh, sort of quite um, quite cutting quality to her human observation skills, which she focuses on Hillary and perhaps more importantly, the team around um, Hillary the uh, of uh, mostly male, uh, fairly frat boyish press people um, uh, who, um, uh, who Amy Chozik had to deal with, who hated her, and clearly that was returned in kind. So to me, the most interesting thing about this book isn't, you know, uh, whether the media um, uh, played a role in Hillary's defeat, because I don't think that's provable either way. Uh, and I don't think that Hillary should have come within such a narrow um, uh, position where anybody could have played a role in her defeat. She should have won. Um, it's not so much that as just the culture of hatred stretching back to when Maureen Dowd was young um, uh, between the New York Times and the Hillary campaign and just how obsessed each was with the other. Uh, that, that to me, it's that sort of geology that's most fascinating about this book. Uh, and I, I will, you know, slightly guiltily say that everybody should read it. It, it, is, it is brilliantly written, even if it isn't brimming over with the sort of kindness of the human spirit. <laughs> well, Colin, let me give you the last word on a question that kind of comes naturally out of Ed's comments. Uh, the one of the things for which the the Clinton campaign was was really criticized. Uh, this was this was in 2016. It was also criticized for the very same thing back in 2008. Was that the sort of campaign inner circle was you know the, the, everybody was their own worst enemies. Uh, uh, they couldn't break out of a kind of paranoid style. That was you know obviously there are all sorts of external reasons for for the election results in 2016 but that that was a little part of it do you see any likelihood that the next presidential election will see the democrats able to field a nominee who is free of some of the kinds of baggage that that 
weighed down the Clinton campaign several times in a row? I mean, I hope so. I think it's I look, I think Trump's Achilles heel is that he's a terrible person. And I say that because you know, you, you know, say that like it's a bad thing. No, no, no. It, no, it's that as a generic Republican, in some ways, he's been good, right? He put a conservative on the Supreme Court. He's deregulated the economy. He's cut taxes. He kind of talks tough uh, in foreign policy, even if he doesn't really have an underlying strategy. I think you know, he's generically there are a lot of Republican voters who might look at Trump's record and and like him. So why aren't his poll numbers great? And the reason being that people don't want their kids exposed to him when he's on television or on the radio. He's a terrible person. Uh, and so I think the Democrats get th- I don't know whether it's three points, five points, whatever it is, just by nominating someone who's perceived to be a, a decent person and a, and a relatively stable person. Uh, because I think a lot of times, uh, I, I, last time in 2016, a lot of Republican voters, and let's remember, 90 percent of them voted for Trump, uh, walked in and basically said, yeah, he's terrible, but she's worse. And some of that was unfair to her. And some of, some of it was fair and some of it was unfair. And the other rationalization they made is, yes, he, Trump, is terrible, but he'll be domesticated by the presidency, which we now know isn't the case. If anything, power has made him even nuttier and crazier, or at least we're exposed to more of that nuttiness and craziness. So I think the Democrats have to pick somebody who is who is widely perceived as and is a decent human being and is seen as a kind of calming, stabilizing uh, influence. Um, that said, I look, I think it's going to be a chaotic primary race. There probably will be 20 people on the stage, a bunch of senators, some governors, some celebrities, uh, you know, ideologically all over the map, generationally all over the map, people representing different parts of the country, different ethnicities. And so it's going to you know, it's not like you can bioengineer uh, the outcome of this. We'll just have to see what comes uh, out of it. But if the Democrats nominate someone who is seen as a good person, I think they, they have a very good shot of, of defeating Trump. Can, can I can I sort of issue one very uh, brief discordant note to, to, to a, <laughs> oh, what, no. what, what, what Colin just said? <laughs> I, I hope Colin is correct. No, I hope you're correct. And I think uh, Trump is a terrible person and people see that. But I just got back from a week in Israel uh, where I had dinner with Bougie Herzog, the leader of the opposition, who should now be Israel's prime minister. And the reason he didn't become prime minister, you'll probably recall, three years ago was because just before polling day, um, uh, Bibi Netanyahu said that Arabs were being driven in droves by shadowy international NGOs to the polls, prompting Obama make a very rare outburst, uh, a very angry outburst, saying that's just the kind of thing people used to say about African-Americans. And what Herzog uh, who remains very calm and unbitter about this uh, this uh, experience said to me was, look, it doesn't matter how unpleasant the person is, if they play the security card, they win. Um, and Trump is really good at doing that, of, of, of finding people finding reasons for people to think of other things than just how unpleasant he is um, in certain contexts context, and making them think with their viscera and not with their brain. Uh, and, you know, I fear that Trump is quite capable, however nice the Democratic nominee is, uh, of pulling this off again in 2020. So I, 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 hope, I hope you're right, Colin, but I don't think, I don't think per se Trump's intrinsic nastiness as a human being is enough <laughs> any is enough bar. For, is any bar <laughs> well on that cheerful note it's time to bring this episode of deep state radio to an end uh, ed i think you have captured the thorny crown of entropy for for today um, but but we will be back Thank um, you. <laughs> later I'm in the week. 
Um, I believe that David will be back for our next episode as well. So, so hang in there, if you, deep state listeners. If you're if you're feeling deprived of David, he will return. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed, and thank you, Colin. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.